Welcome to the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. In our sermon series, History, we'll be looking at the big picture of God's rescue story from Genesis to Revelation. Today's speaker is student minister Aaron Adams. Good morning, Mount Carmel. I'm so glad that you guys are here. If I've not met you before, my name is Aaron Adams. I'm the student minister. And I have to tell you, I'm, a, I'm excited for a couple of reasons this morning. Number one, the high today is like 36 degrees. Uh, yes. <laughs> Which is so much better than what we've had. I looked at the forecast this morning, and like Thursday and Friday are supposed to be in the 50s. And I'm like, what's that going to be like? Um, the, the second thing that I'm excited about is that uh, we're starting a new series uh, this morning. New year, new series. So we're starting a series that we're, we're calling History. And uh, I would uh, deem myself uh, as a history nerd. Uh, I love history. I love seeing how one moment in time over here connects to another moment in time over here and seeing everything play out uh, in between. But I promise you, if you're somebody and you, you heard me say history and you're like, oh, snoozer, um, or if history was your least favorite uh, subject in school, I promise we're not going to try and bore you with endless history facts. You're not going to show up every morning and hear a history 101 kind of lecture, anything like that. I, actually, I hope it's quite the opposite for you. Uh, so a couple months ago, our staff and our, our teaching team, we sat down for a meeting like we so often do uh, to kind of begin thinking through and talking through and praying through what's next for us as we're looking at January, we're looking at the new year and beyond. And this, this idea of history, this topic of history really kind of kept coming to the forefront for us. And I love when that happens because it just feels like God's saying, hey, this is, this is the direction that we need to go. Now we just need to figure out the details. And for me, this, this uh, topic of history came out of a conversation that I had with a, a good friend named Jake. And uh, the, the, the conversation was pretty simple. And it was really, we've got the book of the Bible, and then we have all these other books of the Bible contained in them. And sometimes for, for some of us, I would say probably for a lot of us, doesn't matter what end of the spectrum you're on, whether the Bible is something that's brand new to you or something that you've been reading for years and years. Sometimes we see the Bible, we read the Bible, we might glean some good insights out of the Bible, we might learn some things, but then we say, how does this in the Old Testament connect to this in the New Testament? Where's the parallels? Where's the connection? Uh, and when that happens we sometimes miss the big picture. And when we miss the big picture, we're missing out on this greater discovery. And that's what we're after in this series. We're after the big picture. We're after the great discovery. Um, and so as I was thinking about this this week and how we, how we think through the Bible, as how we read through the Bible, I, I had to laugh because it, it made me think that reading the Bible and studying the Bible is almost like putting together Ikea furniture. Like, if you know what I mean, like if you've been to Ikea before, then you know, you walk into the store and they've got furniture everywhere. You got nice living rooms set up and kitchens and bedrooms and, and everything in between. And you walk through and you're like, that's a really nice chair. I like that chair. Well, this is a super nice desk. I got to have this desk. It's got to go in my, in my office or in your house or wherever. And then... You, you write down the number and you go through the store and you get to the, the, big, the big warehouse. And there's shelves and shelves and shelves of boxes and boxes and boxes. And you find the number and you kind of pull out the box and you're like, we write down the right number? Like this box is way too small for a desk to be in here, for this chair to be in here. 
There's so many pieces with, with that type of furniture. And so it reminded me of a time my wife, Elise, and I, we were, we were married for just a year, and we had just bought our first house. It was nothing special, small ranch-style house, but it was ours. Created lots of memories for us. And uh, like any young couple, uh, find a new house, new apartment, got to have something to eat on. You got to have something to sit on, that kind of thing. And so some of that we were able to buy on our own, and a lot of it was just hodgepodge stuff from our, from our relatives, from our family, but it made it our house. And my in-laws were generous enough to buy us a, a really nice kind of kitchen island. We had a really small kitchen, hardly any counter space. And so we needed this, this island, and it was nice. It was on wheels. You can move it around. It opened up. There were sliding drawers, butcher block top. But I remember the box it came in. And it was one of those boxes where it's like this big and like this long. And you're like, there's no way. There's no way there's an island in this box. But I'm like, okay, we can figure this out. Like, no big deal. New homeowner. Let me grab my screwdriver kit because that's all I got. Let's <laughs> start put, putting this together. And I, I remember opening the box and just pieces of wood fall out and dowel rods and nuts and bolts. And you're just kind of like, there's no way. There's no way that I'm going to be able to figure this out, but no big deal. I'll just look at the directions. It's like a half sheet of paper, and it's like a foreign language. They tell me nothing about how to put this island together. The directions should have just read, figure it out yourself, and that would have been more helpful. But, so we start working on it, working on it, and it took us like all day to get this island put together. I probably tossed a few screwdrivers across the kitchen that morning, but eventually we started to piece it together. Eventually, you know, there were some moments where like, this is not the way, this does not go here. This cannot be where this goes. But eventually we started to figure it out. Like if this piece goes here, then this piece over here goes right there. Now it makes sense. And I think, I think the Bible's like that for us sometimes. Like once we can understand something over here then something on this side is gonna make a whole lot more sense to us. So that's what we're after. We're after the big picture. When we can see the big picture, we're going to find a great discovery. And so that's what we're going to do in this series. And we're going to be using the book of Romans um, in the New Testament as our spine. It's going to be our driving force in this series. But it's only a piece of the puzzle. So we're going to be connecting Romans with the book of Genesis and Exodus and Deuteronomy and so on and so on. And we're going to find these parallels. Where do these connect? Because if we can understand this over here in the Old Testament, then what Paul's saying in the New Testament is going to mean so much more to us. Um, and so if you know anything about the book of Romans, you know it was written by a guy named Paul who wrote a lot of books in the New Testament. And Paul wrote this book for really a couple of reasons. Number one, the church was spreading at this point. Like, the church is spreading, it's growing, it's spreading out, it's not just in one cluster, in one specific area, like, it's starting to, to spread out. But Paul's life was also under constant threat, constant threat of imprisonment, constant threat of his life, and Paul loved to travel, he loved to, to get to places, and so he wrote this letter to believers in Rome, um, Christians in Rome, and he's like, hey, if, if I don't get there, here's everything you need to know. Like, Romans is an explanation of the gospel. Really, Romans is an explanation of the, the story and the mission of Jesus. And if I don't get there to tell you this, I want you to know this. Like, if I don't get there, I want you to be able to carry on the mission. But Paul also realized that the, the church in Rome was divided. Like, seriously divided. And it wasn't healthy. It's not good. And so he writes this, this letter to them to say, hey, uh, I'm going to level the playing field right now. Uh, for everyone, because you've got to know this. So we're going to start in, in Romans chapter 1, 
I'm just going to read a couple, a couple verses from it. I'm going to start in verse 18 and read through 21. It's on, the, it's on the bulletin, but also be on your screens. It says this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so we read the first chapter of Romans, and that's just like a small glimpse of it. And you're kind of like, that's not encouraging at all. Like, New Year, like, can we just skip this part? Can we just move on? Like, because Paul's like pointing out like, hey, this world is wicked, this world is foolish, this world is sinful, and not only is the world sinful, but you, the church, are sinful. And we kind of like, ugh, it's not an easy pill to swallow. Like, I'd rather just keep moving, gloss over it, chapter two, let's go. But there's context to that, and this context helps provide the big picture, and the context is this. The church in Rome was made up of kind of two sects of, of Christian. You had the Jewish Christians, you had the Gentile Christians. And the Jewish Christians, they would look at their history, they would look at their lineage, we are the people of God, we are the people of Abraham, so like, that's got to make us superior in the eyes of God than you over here. And then you'd have the Gentile Christians who are on this side of things, and they're like, hold on a second, like, like, like man, like, our ancestors weren't the ones that had to wander in the desert for 40 years. Like, we heard the gospel the first time, we responded to it, and now we're here. So I think you've got it mixed up a little bit. I think we might be a little bit more superior. So as I read chapter 1 of Romans, I get this, this picture of Paul being, being the parent, trying to diffuse a, a sibling argument a little bit. And I get this picture of Paul grabbing the Gentile Christians by the ear and the Jewish Christians by the ear and looking them both in the eyes and saying, neither of you are superior so knock it off. And so we read Romans, we read the Bible so often, a few verses at a time, sometimes a chapter or two at a time. But this was a letter. Paul wrote this as a letter, and it would have been sent via letter carrier. And so this letter carrier would have arrived to the church in Rome, and everybody would have gathered around on both sides of it. Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians would have gathered around to hear this letter. So there would have been emotions. Everybody has their own emotions, their own thoughts, their own opinions. This could have been a very emotionally charged but impactful moment. Paul sent this letter. Now let's hear it. And so this letter carrier would have read the whole book of Romans as we know it out loud all at once. And so while the, the first chapter of Romans points to the ugliness of this world, while it points to the brokenness of this world, there's also there's, there's hope and there's victory. But we can't get to the hope and the victory unless we first recognize and even appreciate the ugly. And that's not always easy. The ugliness for the church in Rome is the same ugliness as it is for me and you. And the ugliness is that I am sinful. And the ugliness is that I am broken. And the ugliness is that you are sinful and broken. And that should be enough to humble us. 
And Paul's saying, hey, it's not that what people, other people are doing doesn't matter, but it doesn't matter unless you're willing to look in the mirror. So he's like, hey, I don't care what side you're on, look at yourself first because you're sinful and you're broken. And when we can recognize that, when we can allow that to humble us, it should unify us. Because Paul's writing to believers here. He's writing to the church. It should unify us enough to say we need to take steps to get closer to God and we need to help each other get there. Paul kind of continues and he points out and he's saying, hey guys, like from the very beginning, from the very beginning of creation, God has made himself known to you so that you're without excuse. From the very beginning, God has let his power be shown through his creation. And from the very beginning, humanity has struggled to respect and recognize the power of God. Paul's like, we have come so far from what God has intended that it says, Paul says, we have continued to create and invent new ways of doing evil. We continue to create and invent new ways of sinning. Like, think about that. Like, let that sink in. And you're like, this is the part where you're just like, can we, can we move on? Can we skip this? But there's hope and there's victory. But where's the hope beyond the fact that the Jewish Christians aren't superior to the Gentiles? Where's the hope beyond the fact that the Gentiles aren't superior to the, the Jewish Christians? Where's the hope beyond the fact that I am not superior or inferior to any of you and vice versa? See, this letter would have been read out loud all at once. And so the church in Rome would have already been looking to the hope. They'd already be looking toward the victory. They'd already be looking to the marvelous rescue to come. And to look at that rescue, I want to go back to the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And as I read this, I want you to, to just imagine this. Like get lost in this a little bit. This is what it says, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So think about this. God begins to create something out of nothing. The world is formless. It's empty. has no shape. It's not defined. No definition. God's spirit is hovering over the surface, over the waters. God saw that there needed to be light. So he creates light. And he saw that it was good. Don't skip over the fact that God's putting that in the Bible for a reason. God saw that it was good. Like, God didn't stop until it was exactly how it needed to be, until it was exactly how God intended it to be. So God creates the light, separates it from the darkness, and it says God saw that it was good. The next day, God separates the waters from the sky. So now there's, there's like, layers. There's dimension. Like, there's beginning the, the shape. And then God begins to, to, to keep going, keep creating, and he forms dry ground. And the waters gather together to create what we know as seas, oceans. And it says that God saw that it was good. It was exactly the way it needed to be. And God begins to fill the earth with life and color. Every plant you can imagine. 
all sorts of vegetation. Every, every tree that we can, we can think of that produces fruit, God puts it there. He creates it out of nothing and says that it was good. Then God creates the sun and the moon, the sun to govern over the, the day, and the, the moon to govern over the night. Once again, God saw that it was good. This is exactly the way it needs to be. This is what really gets, gets, gets me and amazes me. God begins to fill the seas with every, every kind of sea creature. Every species creates it out of nothing. Every bird in the sky. And it says that it was good. And God creates animals. Every, every species, small and large, every animal, he creates it. It says that it was good. And then God gets, gets to us, to mankind, and it says that God created mankind in his own image. In his own image, God created mankind, like me and you, like we together are created in the image of God. Like, never forget that. Like, God could have created anything in his own image, but he picks mankind. He picks us to be created in the image of God so, that, so we can have this special relationship with him. And then it says that he saw that it was good just like everything else, just like the animals and the birds and the sun and the moon. It was good, like mankind was good to have this, this perfect relationship with God. I want to read you um, verse 31, chapter 1, verse 31. This is at the end of the sixth day. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Like, God didn't get to the end of creation and say, eh, it's okay. Like, God didn't get to the end of creation and say, it's good. No, it says that it was very good, like it was perfect. It was the way God just had intended to be. Something now that was formless and empty and void now has life and color and vibrancy, and it's all working together. All the whole atmosphere, the whole environment, all the animals, every species working together to do exactly what God intended it to do. It was good. Very good. And God keeps going, and streams and rivers rise out from the ground. They give life, color to every species, to every plant, every tree. And God comes back to mankind and says that the very breath of God is breathed into the nostrils of mankind, creating man, Adam. There's a Hebrew word called ruah, and it means breath of God that gives life where there was no life, community, where there was no community, and courage, where there was no courage. Like, this is exactly just what happened. The breath of God brings life to something that was lifeless, something that was empty, something that was dark. And God creates man, Adam, and he knows that he can't be alone, and so it's not the way it's supposed to be, and so from the very rib of Adam, God creates woman, creates Eve. And they are they're to do life together. They're to live together. They're now the caretakers of this world, this beautiful world. They live in the Garden of Eden and they can eat from, from any tree except for one, the tree of knowledge of good and evil because that tree leads to death and they know this and God has told them this. See, while this world has sin and brokenness now, it was created to be good and it was good. I had a professor in college once ask me, Aaron, how do you know God's real? How do you know God, how do you know who God is? 
took me a second to answer this question in front of everybody and I had to think about it for a second, but then my answer was kind of simple. It's like, man, just let me walk on the sandy beaches and see the sunset or the sunrise. Like, you've been there. Like, how breathtaking is that? Like, how magnificent is that? And if that's not good enough, let me ride the ski lifts in Colorado and just see the snow-capped mountains in the background. Like, that's how I know God. Like, heck, just give me perfect north. Like, that's cool. <laughs> But if that's not good enough, just let, me, just let me walk in the woods on a warm, sunny day, and it sounds so good right now. See, the, hear the birds chirping and the animals running. That's how I know, know God is real. Like, that's what, that's what Paul was trying to remind the Roman church. Like, from the very beginning, God lets you know him through creation. Like, from the very beginning, God has shown his power to you through creation. Don't ever forget that. Spoiler alert, though. It didn't stay good. Things didn't stay as God intended them to be for very long. Sending the world through the, through the fall of Adam and Eve. There was a serpent. We know him as Satan. And I don't know if all animals could talk back then, but the serpent can, could. And uh, he struck up a conversation with, with Eve, and he begins challenging her on everything she knows, challenging her on everything that God has told her. And, Eve, are you sure you can't eat from every tree? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure we can eat from just about any tree except for one, because that tree leads to death. No, it's not going to lead to death. It's going to give you wisdom that you didn't have. It's going to make you like God. God doesn't want you to be like him. But don't forget, we're created in the image of God so that we have this relationship with him. Like, I think God wants us to be like him. And Eve sees this, this fruit and it looks good, and it probably tastes good, and it's going to give me wisdom that I didn't have, this knowledge that I didn't have. So she eats it. And we're like, Eve, what are you doing? Like, Eve, you had everything that you could ever imagine. Like, things were perfect. Like, you, you had this perfect relationship with Adam and God, the creator of the universe. Like, why? You can't let Adam off the hook either. It's not like he was far away. It's not like he was changing the oil of his truck. Like, he was there. Like, Adam was right there, like, with her. And he eats it, too. And while there is sin and brokenness now because of that, God created this world to be good, and it was good. But the moment that sin entered this world, God put a rescue plan in place on our behalf. Like, the very moment. It all went wrong. When humanity chose enlightenment and the promise of power and independence over God, it all went wrong when we decided to choose to praise ourselves instead of praising God. But the moment that that happened, God put a rescue plan in place on our behalf. Like God, the, the creator of the universe, like the, the God that created stuff, this world, how easily it seemed like he did it, could have just crumpled it up and thrown it in the trash can. It's not what happened. Like, God could have looked Adam and Eve in the eyes and the rest of humanity that was going to follow and said, see ya. That's not what happened. There's this, this rescue that happens, and it starts in Genesis chapter 3. So read that with me. Verses 14 and 15. This is right after the fall. It's right after sin into the world. 
So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So if I'm the serpent, this is not a conversation I want to have with God. This, the serpent was once deemed crafty because he was smart. He's now cursed by God. God says, all the days of your life, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust. Like God is saying to the serpent right now, you are defeated. Like I want you to know every single day of your life, you're going to crawl on your belly and you're going to eat dust because you are defeated. And then God tells the serpent, I'm going to put enmity, hatred, ill will between you and the woman and between her offspring and yours. And here's what I know about that offspring. Here's what I believe. I think it's twofold. I think that offspring is restored humanity. I think it's Jesus. And the two of those will crush the serpent's head. Like right here, Genesis chapter 3, God's saying, hey, like I know sin entered this world, but it's going to be made good again. And I'm telling you that right now. Like I'm telling the serpent he's done. I'm telling the serpent he's defeated. Like know that. And Paul's referring back to Genesis. He's like, I, look, I know sin is entered this world. And you're sinful, and you're sinful. But don't forget, you know God because of creation, and God put a rescue plan in place on your behalf. See, while sin and brokenness is in the world now, God created this world to be good, and it was good, and it will be made good again. That's the beautiful thing about this story. Right here in Genesis chapter 3, God's saying it's going to be made good again. And I think that's a call for us to be victorious. But I think so often for, for myself, and probably some of you guys, we feel defeated. And we act defeated. Because here's the, here's the truth, here's the reality. Our sin, our brokenness, our shame, our fears and our, our anxieties, they are heavy. And we pick those up and we just carry those as far as we can. And so often we never cry out to God. And God's saying, it's not supposed to be like that. God's saying, like, just give it to me. Like right here, Genesis chapter 3, God's saying, it's going to be made good again. Like I'm foretelling for that to you. Like God didn't wait. Like God could have waited. Like it we could find this way back in the Bible. But Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning, God's saying, the serpent's defeated. He knows it. And you're going to be victorious people. And so I think we have a decision to make. And I think it's a daily decision. Am I going to choose victory or am I going to choose defeat? And that's hard. Because pain's real. And sin is real. And we feel that every day. And so Paul's looking at the, the, the church in Rome. He's like, look at yourself first. Recognize your brokenness. Recognize your sin and allow that to humble you enough to where you can get to a spot where you can look that person in the eyes who's different than you and say, I love you. Now let's go chase this victory together. Like that's what God's, like that's the big picture. Like victory's to come. Like we might not see that full effect right now. Like we might still sin. We might still feel that brokenness. We still feel that pain. But victory's coming. And Paul's like, hey, don't forget that. Don't forget to glorify God because of that. Don't forget to thank God because of that. 
am I going to choose victory or am I going to choose defeat? Too often I've chosen defeat. But God's like, choose victory. It's there. It's yours. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, and our team's going to come out front. We're going to sing a song together. And I want us to sing this song like we're victorious people. I want us to sing this song like we're the victorious people that God has called us to. And if you have a, if you have a prayer need, our team's going to be up front. You can share that with them. If you're in this room right now and you've never chosen victory before, you've never chosen freedom, and that's something that you want to explore, if that's something you just want to ask questions, this is the place to do it. Am I going to choose victory or am I going to choose defeat? Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful for this rescue. And I'm so thankful that you decided in the very first book of the Bible to let us know that we are victorious people, that we can taste that, that we are called to be like you. We're made in your own image. And while there's sin and brokenness now, God, you, you created this world to be good, and it was good, and it'll be made good again. God, I pray that we choose victory. It's your name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can interact with us online at our website, www.mtcarmelchurch.org. Also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.